Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hey, a little bit of housekeeping before we begin the show. We are hiring again here at Canada Land, our growing company. We're hiring a few new roles, but there is something I wanted to specifically draw everyone's attention to. Journalists listening, we are hiring an editor-in-chief. It's time. Uh, for the next phase of this company's growth, we need somebody new to run our newsroom, to lead our news organization. But what I want to let you know is that we are casting a wide net for this role. We are not only looking at people who come from audio journalism backgrounds. We are just looking for an excellent and experienced newsroom leader to take the reins as we move forward. Check it out. Tell a friend. Go to canadaland.com jobs. The victim was struck down by a chainsaw, hacked into pieces, and carried away in a flatbed truck. Fragments of the corpse, pieces of limbs, were found strewn about the crime scene. The victim was approximately 273 years old at the time of death. Height, 65 feet. Weight, 3,000 pounds. Ethnicity, maple. Tree theft, people. It's a thing. Crimes against nature. Literally. Lindsay Borgon is the author of Tree Thieves, Crimes and Survival in North America's Woods. In reporting and researching her book, Lindsay did ride-alongs with rangers. She sat face-to-face with forest felons. She dug into old trial records from forest court. I'm not making this stuff up. Just wait. You'll hear. Lindsay joins me from British Columbia in a moment. Wait for it. 
This episode is brought to you by Hamilton Verissimo, Mathieu Payette, Brianne Nemez, Samuel Bailey, Heather Jane, Kyle Parker, Craig Silverman, and John. I'm John, a software developer living in Toronto, and I support Canada Land because it helps me learn about important issues in Canada and always has the most engaging presenters. My name is Lindsay Borgon. I am an author. I'm an oral historian and a National Geographic explorer based in British Columbia. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Lindsay, how do you steal a tree? Yeah. uh, Well, most people steal a tree the same way that you might cut a tree down legally. So you use a chainsaw. In some cases, you might use an axe. But uh, the only difference is that you're doing this work at night. And so often trees are stolen from areas that are right along a roadway. And so the tree will be felled in the direction of the road so that it's easy to buck up, cut into smaller, more portable pieces, and throw into a back of a vehicle and take out of the forest. So a tree thief will be in the forest, but on the road and will fell a tree. Often it's really close to a road. So some of the field work that I've done with park rangers and natural resource officers, you know, they've taken me on forestry roads or parkland roads and we've been driving and they'll just pull right over and we might walk, you know, 10 or 20 steps back from the side of the road behind maybe that kind of first stand or curtain of trees. And we found felled trees and poached stumps and everything right there. Do they have the police tape up and like a chalk outline? (laughs) So depending on where the wood is taken from, you know, the next steps are slightly different. But in both cases, actually, they did kind of set up those markers that you might see at a forensic scene with the numbers and take photos and measure out the distance from the road and the length of any of the tree that's been left behind and measure the stump and and that kind of thing. It it looks like a police scene. It's a crime scene. It is. All right, but we're talking about the cops now. Let's talk about the robbers. So, like, what am I driving? I'm not driving my, like, a Honda Accord. Like, what what am I, what am I driving to, 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 to go steal a tree? Oh, well, I mean, that's actually kind of up to you. So, I think it could be often presumed that a tree poacher is going to be driving a, a truck. Nothing fancy or industrial in that way, but just kind of your regular Ford or Chevy truck and filling up the back. Often, though, poachers do use smaller vehicles and and simply load the wood into the trunk of a car. And then where do you sell your stolen tree? Yeah, that actually depends on the species of the tree and then also who your buyer is and what they might want to use it for. So there's kind of different ways that it enters into the system. It's really common for Douglas fir to be sold really quickly as firewood right away. Um, And so that often looks like maybe chopping the wood into kind of portable pieces and putting it in the back of the truck and selling it by the cord or by the half cord. Usually that's sold by posting on Facebook Marketplace. Facebook Marketplace. Yes. uh, Facebook, Kijiji, Craigslist, kind of back when Craigslist was a bit more relevant. These are the online methods of selling Wood in the Pacific Northwest, we have figured maple. We have these maple that are just so beautiful. They have these really lovely kind of grains on the inside, and they're often sold for musical instruments. Um, so, like the guitar blanks, the kind of front facing part of a guitar. And uh, a number of poaching cases have been investigated by seeing posts for that maple on Craigslist and investigations going from there. Somebody posts to Craigslist, I have wood. Mm -hmm. The cops are on the case. Well, yeah, particularly if they know that it's the type of wood that normally would be grown in a conservation area, like a national park or provincial park, national forest in the United States. Uh, You know, they know that it's very likely that it could have been illegally sourced. What's a maple go for, by the way? If you've got a hot maple, what are you selling a maple tree for? Yeah, I mean, that's a th- that's a really good question. It depends on where you're selling it and how fast you want to get rid of it. Uh, so cedar and maple, they're going to go for a little bit more than a Douglas fir. So a Douglas fir, just for context, if you're going to sell a truckload, truck bed full of Douglas fir that someone's going to use for firewood, 
Where I live in the interior of BC, you know, it'd probably be about $300, $350. Um, the interviews that I've done in the southern mainland and kind of Vancouver Island closer to these bigger cities, you know, it's going for closer to five, five fifty. Cedar and maple, that wood is a bit more specialized. It's a bit more sought after. Um, and it depends on how it's being sold. So if it's being cut into slabs, um, if it's for for guitar manufacturing or if it's, you know, maybe being used for high-end housewares, some trees have been sold to mills for about 10 grand. So they certainly command a fair chunk of change if you know where to take them. Yeah. And since the pandemic, like a price of yeah. lumber, from my city boy perspective, all you hear about are people complaining about how expensive their renos are. And uh, Yeah. And I mean, timber poaching definitely increased due to the price of lumber because there was a shortage on what people could access and people were relatively desperate to get their hands on it. Um, and, you know, even if someone was offering you a pretty nice deal online or, you know, in your local community and you're willing to kind of turn a blind eye, there's a chance that that wood was not coming from a reputable source. And you'd know because the price is just too good to be believed or because I guess you're buying it on Facebook Marketplace? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess in a sense, you're willing to take the risk if you're buying it from your neighbor often. But yeah. Uh-huh. And from the thief's perspective, I mean, you could, you, you know, you're probably taking the same level of risk, whether it's a $300 Douglas fir or a $10,000 maple, so you might as well go for the maple. Yeah, if it's nearby to you. I mean, part of it is where you're located, your ability to get into the kind of valuable stands of wood and then get out relatively quickly, and where that wood is going to go and how quickly you can offload it, um, you know, whether that's to a mill or often kind of a specialty shop or again, posting through online message boards, et cetera. So it, it, it is kind of all situational. Yeah. I guess I never thought about it, like the value of a tree uh, that like, if you're looking at this a certain way, that's $10,000 standing right there. Just, just, to, mm -hmm. it's just. Or more. Or more. Or more. I get yeah. like, you know, doesn't grow on trees, uh, but there it is. Yeah. And there's some interesting questions around that because the value of that tree might be $10,000 because that's how we're understanding it like through the market. But when it comes time in poaching cases to perhaps apply fines or to punish someone who has taken a tree from somewhere that's like a national park or a protected area, the value is much more because it's a habitat for other species. It has recreational value. It has tourism value and it has value to the climate. So those are often then worked in later. Yeah, I'm actually much more familiar with those values than the Facebook marketplace value. Of course. I mean, I know that there's a logging industry, but but uh, as a as an item to swipe, it's kind of a new concept. And so, okay, returning to our, uh, a crime has occurred and I'm a cop on the case. Uh, I've, I've, I found out about it because there's a listing on Facebook marketplace. It looks suspicious. I mean, I'm trying to avoid like a comedy sketch setup here, but like, it's kind of a funny situation for the cop to show up at somebody's house. You know, I think maybe you stole a tree. It's not like you can hide that under your mattress. Like, on the other hand, everybody's got like wood, I guess. How are they to know? How do they, how do, how do the cops know if somebody stole a tree? Perhaps maybe I can just clarify a little bit. Often the posts online or even word of mouth kind of being communicated to a ranger or an investigator, that's not going to be the only driving force for the ranger in approaching someone's home or yard and saying, can I see that wood? They actually need really, really strong cases to do any sort of searching. So how do they build those cases? Yeah, primarily through informant systems. So there's a lot of development of technology that is meant to, or that people are really hoping will make it more risky for tree poachers to go into the forest and poach. But in general, law enforcement has found that the most common way to hear about a poaching site and then to have an idea of who may have done it is through local informants bartering in a sense, you know, like... Tree snitch. Yep. You find a tree, tree snitch. Tree snitch, for sure. So often what will happen is that someone might be doing research or hiking in a forest and stumble upon a poaching site. And they'll know that if they're in a national park or a provincial park, oh, this isn't meant to be here. How would they know that something is off? 
Yeah, there are a few ways. Often the people who report poaching cases, they spend a lot of time in the woods themselves. So they may very well know, hey, there isn't usually a stump here. So that's kind of one way. But usually also poaching sites, they have a lot of duff around. And duff is kind of an industry term or for the detritus of a site that's been logged. So, you know, they might notice a lot of sawdust in a pile. They might notice branches that are in irregular shapes because they've been chainsawed off rather than just falling naturally off of a tree. So that they might notice that on the ground. They might notice um, in between where the poaching site has happened in the road, where the earth has been disturbed by the log being dragged out. Um, the first poaching site that I came across when I did my field work with the natural resource officers in BC, I had no idea what I was looking for, but we were driving down the road and right away we pulled over and the NRO, the, the officer said, oh, do you see those branches? on the road, that's a poaching site. And I would have never really known that, you know, um, but he had said, it's just not normal to have like a pile of branches on the right-hand side of the road there. Yeah. The homicide cops on the wire, they, they, they sort of saw everything with soft <laughs> eyes. They could kind of uh, assess the <laughs> yes. scene of the crime. And so they'll report to the park rangers or to whatever system they're within. And those rangers are law enforcement, and they often have networks within the towns nearby that they're working within and, and driving within every day. And they can start thinking, okay, well, who do we know around here that might be tempted to do this or has done poaching before? And, you know, who can we ask about it? And so that's generally how these cases start. Um, and that's you know, the two larger cases in the book that I followed, they really relied on informants, text messaging, anonymous text messages come in that say, hey, I know that so-and-so took trees from the park last weekend, and you might want to go check this shop for them or this mill. And that can set the case running. Are there any other ways that the cops are keeping track on tree thieves? Mm -hmm. In Redwoods National Park, which I spent quite a bit of time in for reporting of the book, um, it's very common that poaching happens there. And one of the deterrent methods that the park management has adopted is placing hidden cameras near trees that they think might be of high value. Come on. Yeah. There are surveillance cameras in the forest? There sure are. Like it's a 7-Eleven. Yeah, well, they're motion detected. <laughs> they're often nestled into the kind of crags of a tree or into the branches. And they record using infrared so you can kind of imagine what it looks like. You don't get a lot of strong coloring, but you can end up seeing at night people's faces. It's very important that it has night vision because poaching happens at nighttime. And so there are a few ways that they've done this. In Redwoods in particular, around 2017, they plotted out where all the poaching that they knew about was taking place. And then they targeted valuable trees within those areas to place cameras in or nearby. Um, and in other cases, the poaching particularly from redwoods and old growth like cedar. Those trees are absolutely massive and poaching often takes one or two trips. Um, so if it's a particularly remote area or an area that doesn't have a lot of coverage from law enforcement, it's actually possible to maybe go out one night, cut the wood that you're going to take and then take out as much as you can and come back the next night. And in two cases uh, that I discuss in the book, there was an in-between lag between when the wood was poached and when it was all removed. And in order to catch the poachers, the rangers put cameras up before all the wood had been removed so that they oh. could. It's like a sting. Like you see, like you discover it mid-crime and then you survey the area because they'll, they'll come back to the scene of the crime. Yep. And when it's a tree snitch, they just round up the usual suspects. Yes, that's one way of putting it. I mean, poaching is happening in areas that are quite rural, and that's because the park or the conservation area, the boundaries have been kind of determined, and there are often smaller towns around it. And so that means that, you know, there, there's not a ton of people in those regions that 
the Rangers are looking at in the first place. And over the years, they kind of cultivate their network of knowing who might be doing something or even family members of who they suspect might be doing something or, you know, that kind of stereotypical process of what you might see on TV of <laughs> how they're going to get people to rat someone out. Like like interrogations, you mean? Like I wouldn't say interrogation, but I would say keeping strong networks. We've got you on the kindling charge. Uh, turn over the well, the old yeah, growth. And <laughs> I have to say that uh, in one case in particular, there was a community member who had been pulled over in the park and there were drugs in his vehicle and kind of informing on timber poaching was one way to lessen that sentence. Who is doing this? Who are the people who poach trees? Yeah, this is what I set out to figure out because, you know, I started, I'd read a story about tree poaching and in the beginning, I mean, kind of like we're discussing here, I thought this is going to be a good narrative. <laughs> it's going to be like a law enforcement investigation story. The victim is very compelling because the victim is a tree. Totally, right? Because like everybody loves trees. So a, a tree thief is like, that's a great villain. That's a good bad yeah. guy. And who could ever disagree that they're wrong or, you know, uh, and then, you know, very slowly over the course of many years, my narrative just completely unraveled and turned into something new. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself and you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. What do you mean? Well, first of all, I started doing interviews with those rangers who started telling me about who they saw doing the poaching and who they were fining and charging. Um, and I also started really digging into the history of poaching. And there's there were a lot of very strong parallels between the history of poaching as a kind of like an ancient folk practice and tradition and the people that are doing it today. And so when I was talking with first investigators and then uh, like social workers in some of the areas that this poaching was taking place, we really were getting into issues of unemployment, rural degradation for, you know, in terms of a lot of towns, mm -hmm. um, you know, a decline in economy. Um, and also a decline of community and what that meant for the people that lived in a lot of the small towns in these former logging regions of British Columbia and Washington State, Oregon, Northern California, and how all of these compounding factors of what has gone on there in the last, you know, 30 to 40 years in terms of the economy has really created a, you know, a crisis of unemployment and 
disaffection in a way. So I was going to ask, are these guys like laid off loggers? Well, um, I would say that they tended to be the sons and grandsons of former loggers. Uh-huh. You know, I ended up actually doing quite a few long family history interviews with with the poachers that I that I spent time with for this book. And for much of the book, I was centered in a town called Oric, California, which is where this redwood poaching is happening. But really, I heard echoes of Oric's experience up and down the coast. So I feel pretty confident that bits and pieces even of of that story apply everywhere. And that story is that, you know, here's a town that was built up around mills and logging in the early to mid 20th century. During that time, logging went through booms and busts as it always had, but at the same time, technology was progressing to the pace where, you know, clear-cut logging was becoming increasingly the method of logging. And so not only was there logging happening, but it was happening at a speed that was completely unsustainable. And once that industry kind of bottomed out during that decline, you know, it really ended up leaving a lot of people unemployed, and feeling very dejected, feeling very angry, which is, I think, an important thing to remember that a lot of people experience this time as as being an attack against themselves, uh, not just against logging. Um, And when it kind of finally all the dust settled, many folks and their families were left behind in towns that no longer had the kind of tax base that it needed. It no longer had the industry that was funding a lot of the services that were required. And because so much also environmentalism was happening at this time, there was a lot of conflating of the reasons as to why this had happened. And it became very common to blame the National Park Service or provincial parks or national parks for the decline of industry and the decline of a town and a lifestyle, essentially. And so poachers today, you know, the minute I sat down with them and started asking them about why do you poach or, you know, what's what's the motivation here? It, it was always going back to the experience of their fathers and their grandfathers and how something had been taken away with that work. Right. So you you interviewed tree poachers and 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 talked to them about like like do they are, are they like do they feel guilty do they feel justified like like some of them felt guilty you know um there wasn't one emotional tone yeah. i suppose um so just kind of depending on their particular cases their particular experiences it changed um forgive me are they in jail is that where these interviews take no. place where are you, like what what happens to you for for stealing a tree basically what it looks like is that you are arrested in the united states at least the park service has the Park rangers have the ability to arrest <laughs> and place charges against you. That's actually different in Canada, so I just want to be very clear about that. In Canada, you're given a ticket, mm-hmm. you're charged, and you can then go to court and argue that ticket, but you're not arrested. But in any case, usually the poachers are let out on bail um, and given a court date. Uh, they're charged with you know, theft from the federal government, vandalism, depending on what else was happening when they were, when their homes were searched or when they were searched and arrested, they might be charged with kind of surrounding crimes. So for instance, you know, both of the cases that I talked about from Oric, both of the poachers were in possession of meth. Right. And so they were charged with that. But, you know, especially in California, and this was brought up to me a lot, the prison system there is so overburdened that uh, tree poaching was not, you know, high up on the scale of let's get this guy into jail. <laughs> right. I mean, the guys you're describing, I'm picturing the kind of forgotten people, the forgotten workers yep. of industrialization. I'm thinking of, you know, people who once had steady labor with benefits and things, and, and then mm-hmm. industry leaves, but they're still there. And... I guess caught between because there's a lot of activism and environmentalism that's, you know, directed at the logging industry. And then these are the guys caught in between those big companies. Yeah. And the logging industry has done a really good job of essentially trying to displace the criticism lobbied towards them onto the workers. And that works for them because it makes 
you know, workers really upset. You know, nobody wants to hear that everyone thinks that your work is pointless and not only that you're causing damage, but, you know, there was in the time of the war in the woods and the Clyquot Sound protests in BC and the timber wars in the United States of the 1980s and the 1990s, the rhetoric around loggers was was really quite insulting, you know. It really relied on stereotypes against the working poor. And so rather than focusing on kind of corporate malpractice or kind of corporate greed, yeah. corporate hunger, you know, it was very quickly kind of put against loggers themselves and saying, you know, like there were editorial cartoons saying that they were like raping the planet and comparing them to Leatherface from Texas Chainsaw Massacre and all of that. And and that really uh, hurt a lot of people. It may not have been communicated in the best way, but it left a legacy. And that legacy is of resentment and anger toward this system that is now kind of the only visible part of that time that's around now. How common is this? I mean, you write about uh, a few years ago, I guess you did like a ride along on Vancouver Island with natural resource officers with, with tree cops who, who, who complained to you that they like, this was like all, they were run off their feet. There was so much oh, yeah. tree poaching. Like, yeah. can you talk about that experience? Yeah. So the most recent studies, you know, there hasn't been one since COVID. So I think that's important to, to kind of make note. But the numbers for the five years between like 2014 and 2019 uh, that were provided to me, there were 2,350 instances of forest crime in BC. Say that again? 2,350. That doesn't always include full trees <laughs> being poached. I, I just want to make that very clear. Um, so that might also be, it's actually quite common in the holiday season for people to go out and like lop off the top of a tree and use it as a Christmas tree. So that's part of it. <laughs> um, that, you know, that is a forest crime. That's how taking, it starts. That's how. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 2,350 is a lot. I mean, that's what was reported. Only about half of those were ever even investigated. And only about 140 ended up making it to the court system for people to be charged. So it's quite a, uh-huh. quite difficult to actually punish someone for it. I don't know if this is, uh, you know, a proper forum for me to confess. Um, <laughs> but my whole life, uh, for a lot of listeners who won't know, there's a, there's a Jewish holiday called Sukkot where you make a shack. Oh. basically. Uh, it, it, it's, it's what the Israelites did in, in the desert. Uh, there's a whole, it's a long story, but it involves putting what's called skach, which are like branches. We we're supposed to build these little shacks in our backyards and have dinner in them and, and you know, stuff. It, it's weird. Um, look it up. <laughs> but you put branches on top. The roof is supposed to be, you're supposed to be able to see the stars through. So uh, I would ride with my dad and uncle out. we just go to the park and like, collect (laughs) (laughs) stray branches. We didn't cut anything down, but there always was a lingering question and a certain thrill to the exercise. Yeah. You know, come on. I I don't think this is that serious. I'll be honest with you. I will say that a number of poachers who I've interviewed, they've kind of prefaced a bit of their time with me by saying that they've only taken dead and down. Dead and down. Dead and down. So I've only taken trees that have fallen naturally and are dead anyway. And that is still illegal. I'm also wondering about how this intersects with like, you know, indigenous land and people like uh, you taking wood and building things with wood and working with wood. Uh, they didn't buy at a hardware store or a lumber lot. People are buying all of this reclaimed wood for ridiculous yeah. sums. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You see it online all the time, right? Like West Elm is selling like a stump <laughs> for like $500. And you think, oh my God, like no wonder some of the people in these towns just kind of look at what society has become and thinks, what the heck? I don't you know, know how looking, am I the criminal? They're looking here, at, uh, you yeah. know? <laughs> I don't know if they're looking at society or looking at like people like me and thinking, what an idiot. Uh, <laughs> no. Who's buying, um, who's buying that at West Elm? And is there like an outlaw spirit to this? Oh, yeah. The history of poaching is just fascinating. And partly that's because it's really a working class crime. You know, the conceit is that. 
poaching is essentially hunting or logging or fishing. And then one day a boundary is put up that says, no, you can't do that there anymore. And then it's a crime. And so many of the loggers that I spoke to, we talked about Robin Hood a lot. This was a big guiding justification for what they do. I think a lot of people would disagree, and I understand that. But I think just the the kind of narrative around it is interesting in itself. So, you know, Robin Hood was seen as taking from the rich, giving to the poor. In historical records from the 16th, 17th century or so, you can read about, in England in particular, poachers being tried in special forest courts for taking trees from land that was once common land that had then been sequestered for the use of the monarchy and the aristocracy and the wealthy. And all of a sudden, those people were not allowed to go in and gather wood anymore. And so often they would go to the forest court and be charged quite a bit of money for this theft. I'm, 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 this is so interesting, but you said forest court a couple of times. And I'm just picturing like John Larroquette in some <laughs> forest court. Yeah. Again, back in this time, there was a position called Verderer, V-E-R-D, like green, essentially a park ranger, but it was really more of a legal system. One who verds. Yeah. <laughs> kind of the, the guardians of the forest, if you want to think of it that way. And they had their own court system where they tried only crimes that were taking place in the forest. And so verderers were appointed, they were not elected, uh, and they would hold court, you know, every couple of months. And the sheriffs would bring in people that they had caught poaching, people that they had caught stealing, and they would be charged for their crimes. And this caused, as you can imagine, like a huge amount of discord in these small agrarian communities that really relied on forests to kind of stay alive for foraging, for grazing animals, uh, for building houses, any use you can think of. And so there were eventually these kind of community level squads of poachers that would go out and do, you know, as a form of kind of like mass action. And one night they might go into a forest that's owned by the king and and leased out to a baron, for instance, and just poach all his deer or snare all his rabbits or cut down a huge chunk of forest and carry it all out. Um, and not only does the community want to eat the deer and build with the wood, but also screw you a little bit. Stick it to the man. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's a tradition that has continued. And so there are also records in upstate New York that, you know, areas that were once very rural, when they eventually started getting conserved by not only government, but, you know, private conservation organizations or private people, what would happen is sometimes an entire town would be forced to move from where they were because a wealthy person had bought the land and said, it's mine now get out of here. You know, you're squatting one day as opposed to this being the house where you lived. Right. And poaching was a reaction to that. You know, there are stories of people kind of very committed to stealing and, and killing deer in national parks as a form of retribution for what had been taken away from them. I just wanted to say, because you did mention this, and I think it's really important to add, which is that rights that have been taken away from Indigenous peoples through the formation of parks and not only the formation of parks, but like the founding of our entire country and the governance of the entire continent. I mean, that is like the ultimate example of this motivation, right? And so there are some really interesting historical examples of poaching by Indigenous people in, for instance, Wood Buffalo National Park in Alberta, which was created without any sort of consultation from the Dene people. Uh, it destroyed homes. You know, the rangers there were particularly notorious for, for being very heavy-handed with any Dene local folks who, who went to, to subsistence hunt and to practice their, their traditional activities on the land. And, and this has continued into even up to last summer. Um, so there was a case going on where a woman was arguing for some more harvesting rights because wood buffalo had essentially taken away any sort of rights that Indigenous peoples had to go onto their land and harvest. It remains an incredibly relevant issue. I think sometimes when we think about poaching, it might be in the context of either 
elephants and rhinos and really charismatic megafauna in countries far away from here. What is charismatic megafauna? Charismatic megafauna is the term that's used for essentially animals that we've all come to know and love through the media, you know. The um, picture of so the Trumps with lions, see, tigers. Right? Yeah, when they've, uh, yep. hunters who have yeah. killed beautiful animals and get get destroyed online. I see. Exactly. And, you know, it, it tends to be a little bit easier to, for instance, fundraise to kind of set into action anti-poaching measures for animals like that. It's much harder for plant life. Although the rangers in Redwoods National Park, you know, they, they have argued and, and said before that a redwood is often invokes the same sort of feelings that seeing a an elephant walking across a savanna might. And so tell me about driftwood. Yeah, driftwood is a really interesting element to this. And again, Oric has ended up being a really good place to discuss this because Oric is on the edge of Redwood National Park. It, it butts right up against the Pacific Ocean. And so when, for instance, trees naturally fall in Redwoods National Park, they often float down a creek called Redwood Creek and the creek is park property, but it also weaves along private properties. And eventually it empties out into the Pacific Ocean, where often this wood is then, with the tide, brought back up onto the beach. And until relatively recently, locals could harvest that wood for the, you know, their wood stoves and carving, whatever they wanted to use it for. But in the early 2000s, the park extended its boundaries out 30 meters, I believe, into the ocean itself. And so that driftwood and the beach was then park property, and it was illegal to then take that wood. And so there are hidden cameras on the beach there, and people are now... You're kidding. No, I am not. Like, that's the livelihood to artisans who've been reclaiming a piece of driftwood and sculpting it into something beautiful and selling it. And that's a way of life and a life. Like that's, that's how, so they took that away from people. Yeah. And that's certainly how it was perceived at the time and, and is still perceived now. I have to say that when I first started going to Oric, I heard more about driftwood than anything else uh -huh. because it was just seen as being a real serious theft from them actually. There were also really interesting stories that people would tell me about, you know, going down to the beach and gathering driftwood and, and maybe chopping it up was something that kids would do with their families. It was seen as like a cultural practice. I think sometimes it can surprise folks who maybe don't live in a rural area, but a lot of the town where I live, wood heat is the heat that you would use in the wintertime, like it's still very common that that would be your primary heat source. And so when that was taken away, you know, it, it left a lot of people literally in the cold. And so there was a lot of drama around this driftwood situation. And when I was last there, you know, I would hear a lot of people say, and look at the beach now, look at the beach now. And they were absolutely right. It is covered in wood, like just it looks like a huge log jam, like literally uh -huh. a log jam on the beach and nobody is allowed to go take it. Lest they be caught on camera and, and fined as a poacher. Yeah, yeah. I guess you came out of this with a, with a, a very different idea of the people involved. I, I, it seems like there's quite a range, but the motivations are complicated. The motivations are complicated. A lot of the quick answers that were given to me when I first started reporting from investigators and, and rangers would, would be, well, we have a meth problem. Well, a lot of people do drugs, and this is just like stealing copper from a construction site. You know, it has the same kind of stereotypical mm -hmm. motivation that you might hear about. Desperate people just taking whatever they can sell for a fix. Yeah, and I don't think that that's entirely wrong, but I do think it's a really quick way to describe what is actually a much larger story about, like, how did meth come to be a problem there in the first place? Yeah. Uh, you know, what are people struggling with that hard drug use is this rampant in some of the towns? And how are people feeling that this is the best way to go about, you know, living in your community and finding work and earning money and also living in a sort of traumatized area? You know, the last time that trees in your part of the country hit the news cycle, at least as far as we really clocked it and covered it in, in detail, was uh, when the protests in Ferry Creek 
when the videos uh, made their way to us. Is there a relationship between tree poaching and that old growth forestry, old growth logging and protests against it? Yes. I, I think they hold hands, those two issues. So Fairy Creek was the largest act of civil disobedience in Canadian history. Thousands of protesters were arrested during this time over the summers of 2020 and 2021. And then before that, the largest act of Canadian disobedience was the Clyoquot Sound protests and the War in the Woods. And so both of these big movements uh, have been around old growth trees and logging and old growth preservation and and this, these kind of like really fiery, fiery areas of the country. And part of what I argue in the book and part of what my research really shone a light on was that the motivations for poaching really trickle down from the outcomes of the war in the woods and the timber wars. This is the era that poachers were often growing up in or were very young adults in. It was an incredibly heated political environment. It was a very stressful time to be living in the Pacific Northwest. Not only was it simply kind of tree sitters in the woods, it was like car bombs. And, you know, really, it was a violent time. And a lot of people have described this period to me as traumatic, and they are still living with it. And that's on both sides of the movement, you know, loggers that were working in the woods and having axes thrown at them. And that's also environmentalists who who were being, you know, followed by the government sometimes and threatened and abused and, and, and vilified on the other end as well. And so when I'm talking to the poachers about why do you do this? Why are you, you know, um, tell me a little bit about how you feel about the park. To them, it all comes back to this activism at the time that they felt ignored them that didn't, you know, the thing that you always hear is they didn't understand, you know, we had jobs, we had families, this was our way of life, it was my dad's way of life, it was my grandpa's way of life. And that, whether or not that was always true, it was the narrative that that stuck and that took hold. And it was the narrative that was then told to future generations and that current generations now are still hearing. And so when Fairy Creek kicked off, you know, I was very interested in this because I thought how much of the how much of the rhetoric is going to echo what we heard 30 years ago, 40 years ago, and how much like how many lessons may have been learned from that. Um, and I think, you know, I the fact is that not as much clear cut old growth logging is happening now that was then. And so the impacts are not going to be kind of as broad and for as many people, but it still will impact a lot of the rural communities out in BC, a lot of the people that work out here, a lot of the people that have really, you know, they see their roots as being very deep out here. Um, I don't think it will have the same trickle down as perhaps the war in the woods or, or the timber wars had, but, um, you know, the conflict remains. Clear-cut logging is still happening here. It is not a thing of the past. It may have slowed, but the tensions are still there. And when the tree poachers that you spoke to look upon the protesters in Ferry Creek, what do they see? They're seeing the same vision of protesters that they saw back in the day. A lot of this is repeating of stereotypes on both sides. So I don't want to say that the tree poachers are entirely right. A lot of the time they're going to see an, an activist and say, this hippie is coming in from <laughs> wherever and telling me what to do. And what kind of person can live in a tree for two years and not have to work? And, you know, all of these sorts of. But they see the protesters as protesting them, as being against them. They see the protesters as protesting their work. Yes. Um, and so I think that that remains an issue that environmental activism actually across all sorts of industries has not addressed and has not yet figured out how to tap into the fact that it's actually not an anti-work movement. It's not an anti-lifestyle movement in that way, that it's actually 
I don't know, it just, it hasn't seemed to kind of bridge that divide of communication there, right? And in a lot of cases, corporations benefit from that and they can rely on that and they can rely and say, eh, you know, it's going to look like they hate the loggers and they hate the working poor and they hate rural areas and they hate working indigenous owned businesses and forestry, for instance, mm-hmm. and we'll end up just clear cutting as much as we can anyway and eventually getting out. <laughs> So, it do, you know, it doesn't hurt the actual decision makers in this at all. Lindsay, this is fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That is your Canada land. And then we went on something that could be characterized as a date, but I don't think it was. It was totally a date, Sarah Pauly. Just because I turned out to be an unappealing date, who you regretted going out with does not mean that we did not once go on a date. Listeners, you can hear the rest of that conversation that I had some years ago uh, with Sarah Pauly in our Canada Land bonus celebrity interviews playlist. If you are a supporter of Canada Land, that playlist is waiting for you right now on your app. If you want to become a supporter and listen to all of those interviews over the years with celebrities, uh, you can do that by going to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in the show notes right now. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send us. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by Tristan Capicione. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. How are we going to pay for journalism in this country? Uh, We're going to pay for it if people pay for it. And uh, if you like the show and everything else we do, please become a journalism supporter. Become a Canada Land supporter at canadaland.com slash join. Or just click the link in the show notes. You'll find the sign-up process painless, easy, and maybe even a little bit fun. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.